0: Well, good morning, church. If we've not met, I'm Keith Stanley. and It's been my pleasure to serve here on staff for almost 13 years. The last seven and a half of those years, I've been serving as your city ministries pastor, which basically means I get to see God do a lot of incredible things through his people here as they reach out to internationals and as they serve children and teens and adults in hard places. I don't know about you, but I begin every year kind of thinking about new resolutions. Um, and obviously beyond losing weight, which I think we all have that resolution. Uh, the first thing I put on my list this year was I would resolve to give my life to what really matters in 2019. I'd look back over the last year and thought, you know, I wasted a lot of time and I want to give my life to things that really mattered this year. And of course that begs the question, how do we know what really matters most? Does Oprah know? Students, do your friends know? Auburn friends, does Bo know? The reality is God's word tells us what matters most. And what I love about this series that we're in right now, First Things First, is this designed to help us qualify and quantify some of the things that matter most to Jesus. If you missed one of those first two messages, I want to really encourage you to go back and listen to those. My topic for this Martin Luther King Jr. holiday weekend is this, the reconciled life. And we're going to be looking at three truths about reconciliation from Matthew 5, verse 17. But we're going to particularly zero in on the end there where it says, first, be reconciled to your brother. Now, even as I say that, and even as I've studied that this week, I know that many here might be tempted at times to push away from the table today. And I wanna encourage you not to do that. I wanna encourage you to lean in instead of pushing away. Lean in to hear what Jesus says about priorities for our life. Lean in to be a doer of the word and lean in to be obedient to him. Let's pray again toward that end. Father, we acknowledge right now that your word is truth. So, we ask today by your Spirit that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe, and faith to apply your word to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. As you turn to Matthew chapter 5, I want to remind you a couple of things about Matthew's gospel. First, Matthew's gospel was written to primarily Jews. And the goal of that was that they would know and embrace the fact that the promised king had finally come. Matthew uses the word fulfilled several times in those first few chapters to help them know that the Messiah is here. The Messiah has come and his name is Jesus. And he came to deliver us from the kingdom of darkness and he has come to establish the kingdom of heaven. And he's come proclaiming a new kingdom ethic, a righteous life plan for all his followers. We're going to look at some of that plan today, beginning in Matthew 5:17. So read along with me. This is ESV. It says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is a key verse. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So, that brings me to the first truth on your outline reconciliation is the heart of the gospel reconciliation is the heart of the gospel we'll see that in verses 17 through 20 but verse 20 is really important to understand that because in verse 20 Jesus is saying that a greater righteousness than the righteousness of the scribes and the pharisees is required of us if we were to enter the kingdom of heaven now to those who first heard those words that was probably shocking scandalous confusing and probably even depressing After all, the scribes and Pharisees were the most devoted and respected teachers of righteousness in the entire nation. They were the most righteous persons in the neighborhood as far as most of the Jews thought. And they studied the law continually. They memorized a lot of the scripture. And everyone thought they had the inside tract of understanding it. If their righteousness was not enough to qualify a person to get into heaven, then who could enter the kingdom of heaven? That was exactly the question Jesus wanted them to ask. See, one of the problems Jesus had with the scribes and Pharisees is they were misleading the people by teaching a form of outward self-righteousness, an an achieving type of righteousness. They had over 600 rules and their interpretations of of the law as the way to get right with God. And they were teaching this outside-in type of righteousness that focuses only on outward actions, it ignores the sins of the heart. Jesus came to teach a kingdom righteousness that operates from the inside out, a righteousness that can only come as God changes our hearts. The scribes and Pharisees were interpreting the law in a way that made it sound like being righteous before God was actually achievable. They would actually teach the law, Thou shalt not murder. And of course, like them, we would say, Okay, I can do that. I cannot murder. But the problem was they were not addressing the heart issues that led to murder, like anger. To them, only the act was what was important. They actually thought a person could achieve righteousness before God by following their 600 plus rules. And they didn't understand that the law was given to not only show us how to live righteously, but also to act like a tutor, showing us our utter inability to keep the law and to stand before a holy and just God. Actually the law was given to expose our hearts, to show us that we needed a savior, to show us we needed someone greater than us, to rescue us from our failures, and to rescue us from our pending judgment of our choices. The goal of the law was, yes, to help us see God's good design for our lives, but it was also given to show us that we need God's mercy. We need his help to change our sinful hearts. Of course, that's why Jesus came. Jesus came. That's exactly why he came, to make us righteous before a holy God and to change our hearts. That's why he says in verse 17, do not think I've come to abolish the law and prophets. I'm not coming to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Yes, Jesus came to fulfill the prophecies and promises of the prophets, the becoming Messiah, the Savior King, but he also came to fulfill the righteous demands of the law on our behalf. His perfect life of obedience to the law at the, to the will of God as, as was revealed in the law, and enabled him to become the perfect sacrifice for us on the cross, so that through repentance and faith, we can be reconciled to him. As we turn from our sins and we trust in what Jesus did for us as payment for our unrighteousness, as we confess him as the new Lord of our lives, we're forgiven. And our sins get transferred to his account. His righteousness gets transferred to our account. Paul explained it like this. Many of you know this verse, verse 21, 2 Corinthians 5. He said, for our sake, he, God, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In that same chapter, Paul says God was in Christ, reconciling the world back to himself. Reconciling sinful people back through Jesus to God the father is the gospel. It's the good news for us. And it's the good news for the world. We all were hopeless and helpless sinners, rebellious in our hearts, but God sent his son to die for us so that we could be reconciled back to him. When I fully understood that as a high school kid living in New Jersey, I was surprised and I was shocked to understand that I could be declared righteous before God that he would robe me in Jesus's righteousness in a way that he would see only Jesus's righteousness and not my sin. I knew I was a sinful, broken sinner. And I thought, what a deal, what a deal. It makes perfect sense to trust him with my life. So I called out to him to forgive me of my sin and I confessed him as Lord, best decision of my life. And I would say to you today, friend, if you're here and you're not part of his body and you've not been reconciled back to God, I want you to know that you can be reconciled to Him today. You can turn from your pursuit of self righteousness. And you can trust in what Jesus did for you. And you can come, become reconciled to Him through faith this morning. In fact, I would hope that you would receive the righteousness today that's greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees and Sadducees by turning and trusting in Him and confessing Him as Lord. That's good news. But here's what else is good news. The Bible says that God is not only reconciling us back to him through Jesus, but look what he says in Colossians 1, 19 through 20 on the screens. Listen to this. For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of the cross." Jesus is about reconciling everything, and that includes our relationships. And scripture tells us that through Jesus' act of reconciliation, God is forming a new body, a new body that Jesus indwells by his spirit. This new body is a multicultural, multilingual, multi-ethnic body from every nation and tribe and language and people group. And he's creating this new body for us to serve his purposes and to display his glory now and forever. Brothers and sisters, in the book of Acts, we see that this this body, this church, was born as a multi-ethnic church with people from all over the world confessing Christ as Savior and Messiah. And it will consummate with even a greater multi-ethnic body at the end of age, at the restoration of all things. I think with that in mind, on this weekend especially, we need to remind ourselves how important it is for us to learn to love and enjoy our brothers and sisters now of all ethnicities, from all languages and from all backgrounds, so that together we can serve God's purposes and we can display his glory. As we look again in today's text, I wanna remind you that Jesus also had another problem with the scribes and Pharisees. They were misguiding the people constantly by weighting parts of the law that were more achievable as heavier and more important. Jesus is constantly correcting and condemning them in scriptures for this practice of not weighting the most important parts of the law, like circumcision of the heart, which he's about to focus on in his message. We can see an example of this in Luke 11:42. Look at the screens again with me. He says to the Pharisees, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, but you neglect justice and the love of God these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. I don't know about you, but I sometimes find myself doing the same thing. It's easy for me to wait some actions like tithing and going to church and not murdering anyone. Things that I'm doing well, that's more important than other things that Jesus seems to wait. Things like justice and mercy and walking humbly with God and sharing the gospel with others. In this sermon, Jesus corrects the scribes and Pharisees for missing the main purpose and the intent of the law and the intent of his coming and for misinterpreting the law. And then he begins to help us understand the right interpretation of the law, what God is really driving after. So let's look at that beginning in verse 21. As we, as we turn there, and I apologize, I've just lost my place. Let's come back to that. That's gonna bring me to the second point in our outline, which we'll get to reading in a minute. Reconciliation to God transforms us. Reconciliation to God transforms us. The Bible tells us that we are truly, when we are truly reconciled to God, we're a new creation. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, 18. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And now as a new creation, we all have what? A new identity. The Bible says we're in Christ now instead of in Adam. We're now sons and daughters of God Most High. And because of that, we have a new destiny. Heaven is our future home. Because we've been reconciled with God, we've been declared righteous before him, we can now spend eternity with him. And we have a new head. Jesus is now Lord of our lives. And we have a new heart. Jesus comes to change our heart of stone to heart of flesh. This was prophesied by both Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And this heart change that Jesus does in his followers creates all type of internal changes. Changes in our attitudes, changes in our values, changes in our motivations, even changes in our feelings. We have a new motivation to obeying the law. We wanna love God and we wanna love others well. And this heart change also manifests itself in all types of outward changes in the way we live in this world and even in the words we speak. I love the way Dr. King put this. We're going to look at a quote from him on the screen. So we're going to look at several quotes today from him. He says, by opening our lives to God in Christ, we become new creatures. This experience which Jesus spoke of as new birth is essential if we're to be transformed nonconformists. Only through an inner spiritual transformation do we gain the strength to fight vigorously the evils of the world in a humble and loving spirit. I love that phrase, transformed nonconformists, because we are no longer conformed to this world's values when we trust in Christ. We're no longer driven by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. But instead, we are being transformed inwardly by his spirit to the image of Christ, to become a change agent, humbly seeking to reconcile the world back to God in his good design. And part of that good design is this new mission that we have. Paul says in 2 Corinthians five eighteen, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We've received his grace and forgiveness and reconciliation, and he expects us not to keep it to ourselves. We're called to share this gospel of reconciliation to the world fortunately, we have a new helper, right? We have the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who empowers us for the mission, who transforms us into the image of Christ from the inside out. And as he transforms us, he gives us new pursuits, pursuits that change our calendars, pursuits that change our checkbooks. And we have a new family. And Jesus introduces this concept here in verse 22. Jesus comes and He's wanting his disciples to know that they're not just followers. They're brothers and sisters. So he uses the word brothers here for the first time. Actually, that word is actually best translated brothers and sisters because he wants his disciples to know they are now part of a new family. And this new family will be people from all ethnicities and languages and nations. It will be people from all types of education levels, different gifts, different interests, different abilities. Different socioeconomic statuses. Some are going to be like them, and some are not going to be like them. Some are even going to be Samaritans. Some are even going to be Gentiles like us. Brothers and sisters, when we become part of Jesus' family, we can no longer see other brothers and sisters through a vision of tribalism, by what tribe they belong to, what country they're from, what part of the country, our country, they're from what political party they're a part of, what ethnicity they are, what athletic team they support, what university they attended, what neighborhood they live in. Our culture wants to divide us in all types of tribes, even by the clothes we wear, the music we listen to, the cars we drive, the clubs we're part of, the games we play, the jobs we have, the genre of shows we like to watch. And our flesh desperately wants our identity in those tribes where we can feel superior to others. But as Pastor Matt reminded us last week, followers of Jesus no longer stand on others' heads to make ourselves look taller. Jesus wants us to know in verse 22, we're part of a new tribe, an eternal family that includes people from every tribe, nation, language, and people group. And that means we can no longer devalue anyone because they're not part of our tribe. They're not like us. We cannot ignore them. Brothers and sisters, we cannot ignore people, especially those in need, who call themselves our brothers and sisters just because they're not a part of our tribe. Why? Because now they're part of our family. And Jesus would say, the hand cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you. We have a new family, and we have new responsibilities toward our family. We have to serve each other's needs. We have to strengthen each other by using our gifts and sharing our insights in God's word. And in, in this passage today, Jesus helps us to see we have new relationship guidelines. So let's look at that in verse 21. He says, "'You have heard that it was said to those of old, "'You shall not murder, "'and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. "'But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother "'will be liable to judgment.'" Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, obviously, Jesus is saying there's no room for murder among those who call themselves brothers and sisters. And they will be subject to judgment if they do commit murder. The word judgment here is actually a word meant for local courts. And Jesus is saying those who commit murder will go to trial in the local courts but Jesus doesn't leave it it there. In fact, he expounds upon what God's real goal is behind the command. He says anyone who is angry with his brother or sister in Christ is also in danger of judgment. And interestingly, he uses the same word here for judgment. I believe he did that because he wanted to show us that God is not just interested in the sinful act of murder, but that action under the law but he's equally concerned about the attitude of the heart that led to murder in the first place, the attitude of anger. My brothers and sisters, I think what Jesus is saying here is there's no room for anger in the reconciled life. No room for anger or hate or bigotry. They cannot coexist if our hearts are full of love. And anger toward our brothers and sisters is subject to judgment. Proverbs 29:11 says, anger resides in the lap of fools. And Jesus says it should not abide in the heart of a Christ follower. John the apostle put it like this. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, we know that the Bible speaks about a righteous anger toward sin. That's an anger Jesus showed. But this is not what Jesus is talking about here at all. He's talking about an unrighteous anger toward fellow believers. And he's saying this is unacceptable in my family. It's unacceptable for those who have been shown God's mercy to allow anger in our hearts toward brothers and sisters who've likewise been shown God's mercy and been reconciled to God. In the Greek text, there are actually two words for anger. The word here in this text is not usually the word that's used to describe a flash of anger, an emotion that we often all struggle with, right? But it's used more often to describe a seething anger, an anger of contempt, bitterness, resentment toward a brother and sister. It's usually a long-lived anger. In fact, some commentators say it's the anger of pride, of hatred, of malice, of indignation, the anger of revenge. In his book, Stride Toward Freedom, Dr. King admonishes people to avoid not only the violence of deed, but also the violence of spirit. Why? Because this violence of spirit, this inward seething anger, destroys you while you think you're directing it toward others. But perhaps we wonder, what if they've hurt me? What if a person has injured me? What if if they sinned against me? Don't I have a right to be angry and to hold a grudge? Jesus answers that a little further in the message in his sermon in Matthew 6, 14, as he's teaching his disciples to pray. He says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus expects those of us who have received his mercy for our guilty offenses against a holy, eternal, almighty God to show that same kind of mercy and forgiveness toward those that have offended us. Dr. King used to say, forgiveness is not an occasional act. It's a constant attitude. And Jesus says it should be the attitude of every Christ follower who has received God's mercy. Freely we've received and freely we should give. Now, it's important to note here that that God doesn't excuse any type of anger. In fact, in Colossians 3.8, Paul makes it clear that we're to put away all types of anger. He says, put away anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouths. And the fact that Jesus and Paul obviously address this with the church shows it's a constant struggle that we all will face. But brothers and sisters, we must not give up on it because Jesus says it's unacceptable in his family. And Jesus then further expands his expectations of this righteous kingdom living in verse 22. He says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council or literally the Sanhedrin. Now Jesus is speaking this to men and women in Galilee. And the Sanhedrin was 80 miles away up in Jerusalem. I think what he's doing here is he's showing us that this act moves to a greater judgment a national court the Sanhedrin had the power to pass judgment and to put someone out of the temple and out of the community of faith and when this inward contempt starts showing itself in words of contempt Jesus says those who do such thing are subject to an even greater judgment Matthew 12 34 said out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks and that's exactly what Jesus is condemning here This word insults is the word raka in many of your translations. It's a quasi-swear word in Aramaic. And it means calling someone empty-headed or worthless. We might use words like stupid or ignorant as well as worthless. And Jesus says those who attach and use such words toward a brother and sister in Christ, declaring them worthless are in danger of even a greater judgment. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is saying, we can no longer call what God has called valuable, those that he spilt the precious blood of his son for, those that he died and purchased, we can no longer call them worthless, just because we disagree with them or just because we don't like them. We have a new standard in Jesus' family. We're to value our brothers and sisters with all of our words. That means followers of Christ in our family, It means our neighbors, our co-workers, our bosses, our classmates. It means people like us and people not like us. We cannot put down, scorn, insult our brothers and sisters as worthless without being subject to judgment. I think this is something we especially need to hear on this holiday weekend. I know for most of us it's hard for us to understand how people could call themselves Christians in days gone by and have such anger and malice and speak with such terrible insults toward our brothers and sisters in Christ simply because of their color. We know that that's antithetical to the gospel of grace. And we know it's abhorrent to the heart of God. And we know that those who do such things put themselves in danger of judgment from God. But before we cast too many stones at them, we need to search our own hearts. Has anger spilled out with similar words to anyone in our sphere of influence? toward a brother and sister, because we don't agree with them or respect them or respect their choices? Who among us can cast the first stone? As Matt preached last Sunday, we must first take the log out of our own eyes. Then we can see clearly to help others with their sins. So, what if they're not believers, right? What if they're ignorant pagans that hate Jesus and hate his followers? Are we able to have anger toward them? Are we able to cast insults toward them? Are we able to regard them as worthless? Jesus anticipates that question in the same sermon a little bit later, in Matthew 5, 43. It's on the screens. He says, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That last part, by the way, is not in the law. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? The bottom line is Jesus says his family has a new ethic. We have a new relationship ethic for every person that's been transformed by his love and reconciled back to him. And it can be summed up in just one word, love. Right, love, love for God first and foremost, love for our brothers and sisters, even love for our enemies, and love for our neighbors in need. Why love? Because love changes everything. Love changes all relationships. Look at these quotes on the screen about love. It says, returning hate for hate multiplies hate. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Another one, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy to a friend. And finally, I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great of a burden to bear. You may recognize that last one from Dr. King. All these are quotes from him as he challenged his people to not embrace hate, but love to their white brothers and sisters. Why? Because love toward others, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, will always express itself in forgiveness. Dr. King would often say, who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power of love. And Jesus says his followers, should not allow anger in their hearts toward one another. They should not cast insults toward one another. And listen as he ups the game even more. In verse 22, he says, whoever says you fool to a brother or sister in Christ will be liable to the hell of fire. Even greater judgment. Now this word fool, more, was highly insulting in Jewish culture. It had moral connotations, overtones of immorality and godliness. It's the same word in English that we get the word moron from. And it was used towards someone to treat them as morally destitute, hopeless, a scoundrel. To use it was to have contempt for someone's heart and someone's character. It's to say they're a lost fool outside the community of faith. They're rebels, they're apostates. And don't miss this. Jesus says if we attack and attach a title of lostness to one of his children, we are in danger of hellfire, Gehenna, literally. Why does he say that? I can think of a couple of reasons. Number one, we're positioning ourselves in the place of God, who's the only righteous judge. And we're simply destroying the reputation of a brother or sister by saying they're not part of our body. And we're hurting the witness of the gospel for sure. But most importantly, I think he's saying that because we're denying the primary mark of a true believer Not in them, but in us. We're exposing our own heart as potentially lost. Listen to what Jesus said in John 13, toward the very end of his life. In fact, the the night of his betrayal, he said this, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I love you. You're also to love one another. And listen to this, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another love for our brothers and sisters is the defining mark of a true believer so if we don't have love for our brothers and sisters are we saying we might not be a part of the body of Christ I think that's what Jesus is getting at this brings me to the third truth on your outline reconciliation to God transforms our pursuits Reconciliation to God transforms our pursuits. Jesus now gets very personal as he starts to show our personal responsibility of protecting and pursuing unity in his body at all costs. Up until this point, the word you in our text has been plural. Jesus now shifts and makes it personal, singular in the Greek. Let's read that again, verses 23 through 24. He says, if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go and first be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Notice the value Jesus puts here on pursuing reconciliation. He says we can't bring our gift, our sacrifice to God without pursuing reconciliation first with our brothers and sisters. He's telling us that God is not just interested in our relationship with him, but he's also deeply interested in our relationship with his body, the church. And what's truly interesting to me about this command is if we remember that our brother has something against us, immediately and urgently pursue reconciliation with that brother. He doesn't say if we have something against our brother and sister. He says if we remember someone has something against us, run to them and be reconciled to them now later in Matthew 18 he will give instructions if if we feel someone has sinned against us for us to take an initiative to but right here he's saying if you think your brother or sister has something against you you pursue them with all your heart in both cases the emphasis is on the importance of seeking reconciliation and unity in the family jesus is essentially telling us that we must pursue reconciliation At all costs, we must pursue reconciliation at all costs. And it will cost us something. It'll cost us comfort and convenience, probably our calendar, probably some pride, but it's worth it. Notice the sense of urgency Jesus puts on this. He says, Leave your gift at the altar. Now, I want you to imagine you're one of the hearers there in Galilee, and Jesus is saying that to you. You live some 80 miles. From Jerusalem and you you begin a journey and it's probably going to take you by foot with your animal and maybe with your family at least a week to get to Jerusalem and you finally get there and you go through the long line in the temple to bring your sacrifice to the priests and right before you're there giving your sacrifice to the priests you remember that someone has something against you Jesus has dropped that gift run back those 80 miles And be reconciled to your brother. Then come back and bring your sacrifice. Now you may be thinking, I can understand the importance of this, of urgently seeking reconciliation, if I know I'm guilty. But but what if their accusation against me is unjust? Here's the thing. Jesus doesn't put any qualifiers on whether it's just or unjust. He just says, go and pursue reconciliation. Jesus puts the clear burden on the alleged offender to go to take the initiative and be reconciled with his brothers and sisters. Now you can understand why he put it on the offender. First of all, it's gonna show Christ-like humility and love just by coming to that person. It's gonna not only show to them, but to the others who are aware of that offense. But also it's gonna be easier for the offender the alleged offender, to take the initiative toward reconciliation, especially if that person has some type of position of power. But but what if they won't receive my efforts? What if they won't forgive me? Our job is always the same. Pray and pursue reconciliation with a posture of humility and let Jesus take care of the rest. Now, all brothers and sisters need to be willing to forgive each other all brothers and sisters need to be patient with each other but but what if it's a whole race of people what if it's a whole people group our job is still to pray and pursue I need to say a a a word to my white brothers and sisters here a minute I know it's been over 40 years excuse me over 50 years since the civil rights struggles took place in the city and I know that many of you were not alive And I know that many of you didn't and don't support the racism of our past and present. But we cannot ignore the fact that a great offense was committed by the white church against our African-American brothers and sisters and other ethnicities in our history. And a great number of our brothers and sisters still feel that offense. The wounds and scars of the past actions of some of our forefathers run deep, as well as other actions like the white flight that left the inner city without the same educational work and life opportunities that we've enjoyed in the suburbs. And Jesus puts the onus on us to initiate, to run to our brothers and sisters, and to seek reconciliation with them at all costs. Why, why is this so important to him? Why does Jesus want us to urgently pursue this reconciliation at all costs? It's in your notes. First of all, for the glory of God in the church for the glory of God in the church. We need each other's gifts, insights. We need each other's wisdom. We need each other's care. We need each other's resources. Jesus designed his body to be interdependent and no one part of the body and no one church has everything it needs. We need each other to experience and understand God in his fullness and to persevere in our faith. Secondly, we need to do it for the glory of God in the world. This is real important for the glory of God in the world. Brothers and sisters, our unity actually displays the power of the gospel. Our unity validates the gospel to a lost world. I want you to see this in Jesus's last prayer on the way to the cross. He stops and he prays in John 17, beginning in verse 11. He says this, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And we see why he's praying this in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, by the way. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, why? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Four times Jesus is praying in his last prayer on earth that his followers would be univi- unified, why? So that the world might know and believe that God the Father has sent God the Son to reconcile the world back to him. You see, brothers and sisters, our unity is the evidence of the power of God at work through Jesus to a lost world. Another way I would say that is Jesus is most glorified when his body is most unified. Our unity across all ethnicities, tribes, language and nations is a powerful testimony of the power of the gospel. It's not natural. So it validates that God the Father has indeed sent God the Son to reconcile all things together in him. The witness of the gospel is at stake in the way we urgently seek and pursue reconciliation with our brothers and sisters. Let me ask you a question. What do you think would happen in this city if people saw such a great demonstration of love toward one another by those who call themselves Christians? Brothers and sisters pursuing reconciliation at all costs, across at all costs, across all barriers of tribalism, caring for one another, serving the needy together, sharing the gospel together. Would they want to be a part of that community? Of course. That's exactly what happened in the book of Acts. So why not now? And why not here? We must pursue reconciliation of the body at all costs. For the glory of God in the church, for the glory of God in us, I mean, for the glory of God in the world, and finally, for the glory of God in us, for the glory of God in us. We need the work of the Holy Spirit against our flesh that only happens when we're willing to humble ourselves and die to ourselves and die to our pride, admitting our weaknesses, and love our brothers and sisters sacrificially and pursue their understanding of the reconciled life. And as we pursue that, as we depend more on the Spirit's help to pursue unity at all costs, we find ourselves being transformed inwardly, more and more to look like Jesus. And we begin to experience more and more the joy of walking in the Spirit every day. So what, Hills? What does this mean to us? I wanna leave you with three challenges as we end today. Number one, urgently pursue personal transformation urgently pursue personal transformation. First question, have you been reconciled to God? If not, pursue Jesus today, call out to him. The good news is everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It doesn't matter where you're from, it doesn't matter what you've done, let Jesus reconcile you today. But if you're already a Christ follower, do you need, do you need to confess something today? Is there something God has shown you internally that you need to give over to him? Do you need to ask God by his spirit to replace anger with love? Number two, urgently pursue broken relationships. Urgently pursue broken relationships. Do you have a brother or sister in Christ that you need to be reconciled with? Family member, a coworker, a boss, an employee, classmate? A neighbor, a church member, a former church member? Is there a brother or sister that Jesus has put on your heart today that you know you need to pursue reconciliation with? And Number three, urgently pursue new relationships. Urgently pursue new relationships. I want to encourage you this year to reject tribalism and the tendency to only be with people like you and pursue desperately and urgently pursue racial unity in the body of the Christ for the glory of Christ in 2019. I want you to look at this last quote from Dr. King on the screens. Dr. King said this, people fail to get along because they fear each other. they fear each other because they don't know each other. They don't know each other because they've not communicated with each other. There's a lot of truth in that, right? Brothers and sisters, this year, we need to learn to regularly break bread with brothers and sisters of different ethnicities different backgrounds and we need to learn to listen and learn seeking first to understand before being understood i want to challenge you and i want to encourage you this year in the next 30 days ask god to show you someone that you can break bread with who's who's not of the same ethnicity as you for the very purpose of pursuing reconciliation in the body of christ and as you do that I want to urge you to avoid paternalism in that journey. We've got a, we've got a workshop coming up in a couple of weeks called When Helping Hurts. It's designed to help us think through how to do that well. If you've not read that book or been through that workshop, I invite you to join us. But also look for ways to serve alongside brothers and sisters in the city. Look for ways to share leadership with brothers and sisters in the city, respecting their gifts and values and insight and wisdom. And look for ways to share the gospel together with brothers and sisters in this city. I wanna leave you with this final quote. It's from Dr. John Perkins. Dr. Perkins is the father and pioneer of Christian community development in America. He's at the end of his life. He's been, been used by God to transform communities the last 50 years. This is what he says. He says, the church is the heart and moral compass of a nation. To turn a country away from God, you must sideline the church. To turn a nation to God, the church must turn first. Racism won't end in America until the church is reconciled first. Then and then only can can it spiritually and morally lead the way. My challenge to us is let's be that church in 2019. Let's seek to be reconciled to our brothers and sisters by the help of the Spirit.